0: Hi, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, a no-bullshit discussion on how we can reimagine religion and remix spiritual practices in a way that is secular and inclusive to all. I'm your host, Sanderson Jones, and you'll be joined later by James Croft. The two of us are obsessed with showing how anyone can have the benefits of a spiritual or religious life, even if they're not religious. In 2013, I founded Sunday Assembly, a worldwide movement of non-religious congregations, and James is the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of America's largest humanist congregations. Earlier this year, in April 2020, I got in touch with him because I wanted to write a book with him about lifefulness, uh, which is the practice developed at the aforementioned Sunday Assembly that adapts the lessons of the spiritual community in a way that everyone can take part. He said yes. We then thought, why not turn all of the interviews and all of the research for that book into a podcast? And that's what we're doing. Today we travel to Los Angeles, virtually at least, to speak with Vanessa Gomez-Brake, the Associate Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. Vanessa is amazing because she's the first humanist chaplain to be a dean of religious life in any American university. In her role, she works to support and promote university religious and spiritual life, serving the spiritual needs of all students, regardless of their religious perspective. Vanessa's fascinating because even though she became non religious in her teens, she then studied religion at university and got a Master's of Divinity degree, meaning that she spent years studying religion and religious identity as a sort of outsider. She's thought about how all people can benefit from religion and spiritual practices even if they don't have any religious beliefs. We wanted to speak to her because she is not only an expert in understanding how spiritual practices can be adapted for everyone, but she also knows how to do that within an organisation. We think you'll love this conversation because Vanessa is just so much fun to talk to. You'll learn what it means to be a chaplain in a secular and inclusive way, and what being a chaplain actually is. Uh, You'll be introduced to the idea of stealth chaplaincy. Uh, Stealth chaplains aren't vigilantes, but Vanessa uses that term to describe how companies in Silicon Valley now sort of have the chaplain role, but they just don't use the word. I think you'll also really appreciate how Vanessa defines a spiritual life in a way that makes sense for the religious and non-religious alike. She then digs into what that looks like on a university campus in a way that will be really useful for anyone in any type of organisation, school, community or gathering of people. So let's get on with the show.
1: Is that all done, James? Yep, we're all recording. We're ready to go. I hear Vanessa, I hear you. Everything is right in the world. All well, right. let's not go too far.
0: <laughs>
1: Everything is wrong Maybe in not. the world
0: everything is right in the world uh well look i think hey we maybe we can leave that in in the sort of like classic npr podcast <laughs> style where yeah. you sort of like have something at the top and then you join in and it makes it seem like it's unedited exactly oh my you have gosh. a
1: little funny bit and then you have some jazz yeah. to lead into yeah. serious <laughs> discussions so because you know it's serious if it's got some some improvisational jazz
0: And that's what we're going to be sort of uh, creating uh, between James. Hello, James. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank
0: you. Uh, and then also our extra special guest, uh, Vanessa Gomez Boré. Hey, How's neat. it going, it's uh, going VGD? Great.
2: So happy to be here with both of you.
0: Do you ever go by VGB? Is that like a common, like, sort of uh, abbreviation you go by?
2: Well, how timely too, um, because with the passing of the notorious RBG, um, oh, no yes. joke. When I was working at Stanford, oh, wow. I got the I got the title Notorious VGB. I had okay. I had the pleasure. I got to lead the entourage for Ruthie across the Stanford campus back in 2017, and so it was like the uh, most amazing experience. Experience, getting to introduce her to students, to staff, and I'm just, you know, in light of her death, I'm just marveled by what she accomplished. And really, she's going to continue to be an inspiration for me and my work. So, oh. yes, Notorious VGB. That's me.
0: Let's uh, go and, uh, this is only going to be shown on, just pour out a little bit of uh, ginger ale for our homie there. Uh, very much sort of uh, more of a visual vibe. Uh, and... Uh, I mean, neatly demonstrating, I would, the way I was going to lead this off was actually say just apologies at the start. I might be a slightly lower energy. Uh, yesterday, I uh, got food poisoning. So uh, I have been, yeah, it has been problematic. Uh, yeah. And so I was going to, uh, but the first, the question we normally ask at the top of this is what is, you know, what was your religious background growing up? But I was actually thought we'd go in a slightly different way of like, what's the worst case of food poisoning you've ever had? <laughs> like, there must have been a time when... And there's such vivid sort of memories, really. Like, yesterday sort of it came on quickly and then uh, I just knew something bad was going to happen it was brewing and then when I went to bed I was just literally and and because of the whole COVID going around I looked back and I was like oh all those times that I was like I should have like covered myself in everything and then I was with seven people two weeks ago it's probably that and and this has got long-term effects and apparently my wife when I told her I thought I had COVID she looks like you've clearly just got food poisoning and then I woke up in the middle of the night. And it was like bath on one side, loo where I was sitting down. Yeah, bath on one side. And it was both (laughs) ends at the same time. It was absolutely (laughs) horrific. So that's why I wanted to go and put it to you because on these podcasts, you know, we're going to talk about high minded things. But let's not forget even the Pope sometimes gets food poisoning. So, like, yeah, what's the worst food poisoning that you guys have ever had? You know,
2: it's, uh, it's a necessary part of life, you know? Sometimes you get poisoned. Yeah. My worst case is always in the Philippines. Every trip I go, I will get food poisoning or water poisoning, whatever you call it. And so um, I would just say the worst thing that has, I've ever experienced is having to spend the night in the bathroom.
0: Mm, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all, uh, you've been a bit more diplomatic, sort of like yes. leaving <laughs> it at the door. Uh, that's Thank We've God. got different gifts in this, uh, in our ministries. And I'm very much, open the door, come and have a look around. Uh, but, <laughs> while like, while like, you're but on I'm, the loo. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on Instagram the
0: Live. How about you, James? What's the worst food poisoning you've ever had? Have you ever been to a Denny's, Sanderson? <laughs> <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> uh this is, I, like, I know it more from American culture. I think I might have had, like, I thought, I think I've been, and I've been like, oh, it's a Denny's. And you go in and you're like, these are some really underwhelming pancakes.
1: Yes, exactly. It's kind of like a, an American chain restaurant for like breakfast food. and also, So I once made the mistake of ordering spaghetti and meatballs at a Denny's when I was a teenager. And it came without the meatballs. And so we asked them to add meatballs and clearly they just like, I don't know what they did. Oh, who they are did these people thing. demanding meatballs? The, the, spaghetti in the microwave and meatballs. or something. And then the the next day was our flight home. And I had oh, no. those terrible food poisoning on the flight. I spent <laughs> most of that flight in that tiny little cubicle. I'm sure they, they were worried I was preparing a bomb or something. But luckily it was pre nine eleven. 11 yeah, yeah. In.
0: Uh, So now that we've uh, established that we're all humans, uh, what is the, uh, talk to us about your, because you've already mentioned one key part of the story, the Philippines. Uh, Yeah. What was your uh, background, uh, your religious philosophical background growing up?
2: Yeah, well, I could probably give you one guess, but, um, something like 85 to 90% of, uh, Filipinas are Roman Catholic. Um, and the other percent, another form of Christian. So, um, I, of course, I was born here in the U.S., but I grew up on the island of Guam, also predominantly Roman Catholic. And so that is the religion um, I was raised with. And I still c- consider myself a cultural Catholic because you will find me going to mass because that is what my family does. I will go to that midnight mass at Christmas. I will go through that craziness because it's a family tradition. <laughs> but um, anyhow, um, I probably left the tradition or at least belief in supernaturalism from a very young age, probably around the age of 12 or 13, have been an atheist and a humanist since that point. And um, in addition to being Roman Catholic, I'll just say that in the Philippines, we have a variety of traditions that are not based in science, but that are cultural and re- uh, in regards to our respect for the land and other people. And those are things that really informed my worldview as well.
0: What are some of those things, which because I'm yeah,
2: I'm yeah, and so sure you know, many people
0: listening will not be familiar with them,
2: yeah, I was going to say, and it's pretty common because um, if you go to Japan, they'll say they're not religious, and yet somehow Shinto and Buddhism is very much a part of their life, so mm. they don't call that religion necessarily, that's just a practice they observe, so similar in the Philippines, if you ask people their religion, they'll say, "Oh, yeah, I'm Catholic, they'll never talk to you about everything else, and yet, um. Perhaps one of my earliest memories is going to the river with my family, and they say, you don't walk into the water until you give respect to the people. Um, and you're huh. like, oh, what people? Like, or the little people, or the people of the water. And so I remember getting that lesson as a child, and so now, anytime I visit a body of water or enter a body of water, I try to, you know, just um, give respect to the land, basically. So that's something that was infused in me, and... Um, yeah, and maybe beyond that, I will say that um, I guess the English word is shaman. They play a very important role in healing in the Philippines. And so whether it's burning a candle or burning something else uh, so that you, uh, your health is improved... Perhaps your food poisoning. I could light a candle for you, Sanders. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Please um, light a candle sa- wherever same you. Same
2: thing. All sorts of uh, practices um, for the safeguarding our health, as well as our family, as well as engaging with our ancestors who have passed.
0: Thanks so much for that. And uh, there's so much to which we want to dive in to later. What, one of the things we always ask is like, what is, what's one part of sort of religious life that you? think should be reclaimed or should be this is the annoying one is often the people we speak to are just like all of it but sort of non-religiously but so now maybe like on a more granular level uh what's a sort of specific thing which you think
2: uh oh, could gosh. be brought in it's strange because when i think about the catholic church it was so scripted such that um, someone who, like me who gets anxious about going into new spaces, when I go to church, I know exactly what it's going to look like, right? Mm. And there's comfort in that. I know I'm going to sing at least three songs that I've sung a million times before. I know that there's going to be a message from the pulpit that's hopefully uplifting, depending on the priest. Um, <laughs> but then there's all sorts of ritual that um, makes me feel connected, even to the strangers in my pew. Right. Mm. Whether I'm telling them, you know, peace be with you and they're telling peace be with me, like that connection across the pew with strangers, like knowing that they care for my well-being. Like, of course, I want that. I want that with everyone I meet. And so I I named several things right there, but I do like the the connection and um, how it makes you feel, you know that larger connection to your community.
0: There's something about the groove of something which is so familiar as well. You just go in, like, again, I could go into a church service and, you know, and also with you and <laughs> whatever it might be, that call and response, the hymns which come on, and uh, I'm always a bit of a twat and just go, huh, not really reading the book. <laughs> I still remember them all. Uh, but, uh, That's yeah.
1: a bit of a twat.
2: you know what i if i can add something that pissed me off um because so when you know the script when you're a catholic you know the script and so when it comes to the part in the service where you say our father this or that so several years ago they changed the script they added more latin and so that pissed me off because now i was like i don't know that version
1: (laughs) Why did they change it? Like, are they allowed just to change the script?
2: You so that, that, that was that a big deal, actually. And so yeah. the 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 Pope, prior to Pope Francis, he was a very conservative and he put yeah. all sorts of things back into the church that actually distanced people from understanding what they were saying. And so that's a PowerPoint, right? Um who has the power in a religious tradition? Is it the person in the pulpit or is it the person in the pew? And mm. by changing the language, actually, I consider that something that's taking power away from the people. So anyhow, that's just an issue, one of many issues I have with the Catholic Church.
0: <laughs> the, my, my sister had a, has a quite eccentric godfather who's a member of the English Brook of Common Prayer Society, and, uh, which is campaigning for the prayer book which was sort of uh which is the one that uh was done maybe by the king james or whatever it might be it's an older form of it and uh i think he was there was some sort of intrigue in the society and maybe he was going to be voted out and so he brought my uh uh, my aunt, and then my god, my, my sister, his goddaughter, and a, a few of our, the rest of our family there. And apparently, it's just like entirely sort of elderly people, and then just this like one group. And my sister got asked, She's like, she's like oh, it's so nice to see young people here. What, what's your favourite part of the English Book of Common Prayer?" <laughs> and then my sister just went, "I, I how can you choose?" <laughs> <laughs> and the woman was just like, That's a very good point. <laughs> amazing. That's
2: I love perfect. that. Oh, I didn't even mention um even though I'm not, you know, technically Catholic, um, I do have six godchildren. Isn't that an amazing number?
0: <laughs> well done.
2: I know. I keep accumulating them. I'm I'm working really hard on this. So
0: that's a that's a good sign of a person. That means you're either sort of rich with the sort of heart condition. Uh, or you're a nice person.
2: <laughs> um, I think what it translates into, my family really loves me. And so any nephew or niece or cousin that pops out, I have one, at least one for each um, uncle or aunt. So.
0: And uh, so then now what we do is ask like the six different parts of lifefulness, which is like ultimate meaning, celebration, which is sort of translation of worship, uh, then community life, personal growth serving others and changing the world we'll try to keep them relatively like a speed round okay. so we can get into your specialist subject but yeah what would you say your ultimate meaning in life is
2: oh my gosh wait yeah,
0: just quickly though Vanessa come yeah on. don't take it come on mate
2: wait come my on. ultimate meaning
1: yeah what's the yeah, yeah. what's the
2: oh my gosh I don't even you've already think I used I'm...
1: your first 30 seconds you're almost up come on
2: <laughs> my ultimate meaning is to um be of service to to the betterment of this world via um, connection with my family, my friends, and my community.
0: Nailed it. Wow. There we go. Like I, Honestly, people end up sort of getting into their own heads, but you've absolutely smashed that one. Uh, <laughs> I was worried
1: a bit because you wasted a lot of time at the beginning, but you really <laughs> came through
0: at the end. And then what about like what would be your so – what's your celebration, your secular sort of worship? Where do you find that in a, oh. a group or individually?
2: My secular worship, no joke, is all about nature. So I grew up on a tiny island. So the water, the beach, that's my sacred space. I mm. do live in Santa Monica, so I get to see the beach every single morning on my bike ride. Um, and I wish I was at home. I'd show you my patio. Um, I have a jungle on my patio. As much space as can be green life, I have infused it there. So mm. those are sort of my sacred practices, being connected to the land and nurturing um, living things. But um, in terms of community, I find community in my um, student fellowship here at USC. But it I also am a member of a secular sangha, which just means um, a handful of Asian-Americans who come together to meditate once a week. But really, we're there just to hang out. So mm. those are... Um, some forms of uh, spiritual practice.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks so much. And then what about your sort of idea of personal growth? Where do you see your sort of, what's your pathway or how do you sort of help become a, the better version of Vanessa of VGB? Not uh, that there's huge changes to be made, but.
2: Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of times I um, feel growth in connection with my community. So it's how how best can I serve um, people around me as well as my, my larger community. And so I do that with my students. We're in service here in downtown LA. We feed people, we clean the river, we, you know, celebrate, um, you know, life changes and all of that, um, ties into what makes me feel like I'm growing because I just have a network of support I I feel celebrated and held by um this community as well as just um of service to my planet that that way.
1: And how about changing the world? How do you see yourself changing the world? That's kind of our idea of evangelism, you know, the kind of secular idea of.
2: Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I think for a long time, I took the approach of if I'm going to change this world, I need to go big, big, big. Um, and over time, I realized a lot of change happens with the individual. Um, there was a lot of sort of maybe conflict tension within myself, um, that I need to, to deal with before I could, uh, thoughtfully lead. A, a group of people or be of service to other people. And so I think um, not only pursuing inner peace, um, but then connecting that via our values and service to the larger community. And so I do experience change in my immediate neighborhood um, that I think not only will serve this particular group of people, but um, will serve um, for a bigger change in our in our society in our nation and all of that and so I'm not working at a big platform I'm just working at a university campus and by modeling this to my students um, I think that is going to bring about changes that I do want to see in the world
0: thanks so much you really nailed it we did make, kept you on some pretty quick fire uh, sort of uh, uh, rules and regimens there what's that when you sort of mentioned that I'm Uh, having to deal with some of the conflicts within yourself in order to be a leader. What are some of those conflicts and what are, you know, and how did you sort of go and grapple with them?
2: Yeah, I actually think, and I don't know how deep we want to get on this, um, but I actually think having been brought up in a religious tradition that said women couldn't lead, um played a big part as to why I could not find my voice for so long. I did not I had what what is it? It's imposter syndrome, but it's also mm. so many things. Um because I do not look like a leader. Even on my campus I'll walk in and people will not expect me to be a have a, a dean as a title, you know, sort of things. And so the barrier that I had to overcome was that I am qualified actually. Mm. Um and my I do have things worth saying. And the more that I've stepped into that and really spoken up, I've realized that so many of my students are encouraged as well. Again, I didn't have these role models in the church, and I didn't have these role models at my university level, even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And so I'm basically challenging myself to speak up more often, even though I'd really rather not.
1: You were talking about your feeling of the imposter syndrome, the question, am I really qualified to do this? Like looking at your academic history, you're super qualified to do the work that you do. You know, you are a associate dean of religious life at the University of Southern California. So you're responsible for overseeing much of the religious life on campus there. And you got Your bachelor's degree in religious studies and psychology, and then you went to a master's degree in conflict analysis. I'm just reading this off. And then a master of divinity degree from Chicago Theological Seminary. But you said that you already became a skeptic and and left your religious views behind in your teen years. So what was the fascination to study religious studies and get a master's in theology if you weren't religious anymore?
2: Yeah. Um, I always wonder about that because even my parents were like, why would you study religion? Like, does that make any mm. sense? I think I was curious because growing up in such a um, setting where everyone was like me, you know, everyone was Filipino or an Islander and everyone was Catholic. When I came stateside, I was like, first of all, I had never met a Muslim. I had never met a Jew. And I was just like, so curious like, what does that mean for you? <laughs> what does that how does that play out? And so mm. I legit went to university and I was like, I want to know these people. Um, <laughs> and I still didn't believe in, um, you know, what was in the Quran or in the Book of Mormon and so forth. But what are these stories telling us? Right. What are the stories we're telling and retelling and how are they serving these communities? And so I know that I was formed by so much that was in biblical scripture. Um And of course, I now have an academic view as to how that was written and such and so forth. But knowing what stories, um, you know, people draw on to make sense of this world that, you know, um, is so important. And whether they, someone is religious or not, they are telling themselves stories or they're regurgitating stories that they've heard. And that's helping them understand what's going on. And so I think that's what drove me to religious studies, because there were so many good stories being told.
0: Well, I think for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, what we're doing is, you know, really exploring this idea of what we can learn from religion, helping people to take it seriously, because there's so many people who you know, have like particularly in the UK, have just pushed that to the side and think it doesn't really have anything to do with their lives anymore. And to actually say, well, look, if you can go and look at the congregation, people can often get that, yeah, sure, that sort of makes sense because it's people gathering around. But actually the ideas which are expressed in theology and the sort of even the the different practices which you know enable you to then explore those ideas in a physical way, in a, as part of a community, to my mind, there is so much for us to learn in it. And then, and like you have, you're now doing, you know, you're now this associate dean. Like, it'd be great to go and, uh, you know, explain to people like, what does, that, what does that mean? How can a non-religious person be sort of the dean of uh, religious and spiritual life?
2: We are all spiritual beings. So whether you are religious or not, humans share a common pursuit. Right? And that is the pursuit. It's a, a search for meaning and purpose. And so that's what I call a spiritual pursuit. Um, and not everyone likes the word spiritual. I go back and forth on that actually, but the as a Associate Dean, I need to use a language that other people understand. And so that is a word I will use. And students, they get it. They get it. Because they they'll say, Oh, I'm not religious, but oh I I, I guess yoga is my spiritual practice. They get that.
1: Do they do the head thing as well when they
2: see? Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe that's
1: me. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's
0: the thing is they're still, when exploring these ideas, like this word spiritual, it still like is the best way to point at this sort of nexus of uh, ideas and practices and traditions. And then it's up to, like, I feel that that is, I feel, to my mind at least, that's a word which I'm happy to put my shoulder to the wheel of trying to like, sort of show how everyone can do that. But then there are other people who go, "Oh well, look, you've got to understand God in the same way." And I'm like, "I don't know." For me, that's 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 tricky.
2: And. And maybe this will make it a bit easier because, like I said, I don't necessarily like the word spiritual either. But there's certain characteristics that people have agreed make up sort of your spiritual life. And it's like searching for meaning, um, really um, searching for value. Like, where do you find value, you know, in, in your life? Um, the transcendence, whether you're religious or not, you can have a transcendent experience. I experienced that at concerts. I experienced that out at the beach. You know, I experience awe. Um, And what else? Like spirituality, it's like you're becoming what, like you asked me earlier, how am I growing? Like, what am I coming into? You know, asking those type of questions. And then maybe the last one is the most important characteristic of spirituality. Um, It's connection. What I do for my students, you know, more than half of my university, the students are not religious at all. So the fact that they would even come to my religious center, most of the time they don't. But when they do, what I'm trying to do is get them connected to a community because Mm. there is a loneliness epidemic going on across our nation, across our world. But if I can get these students connected with a community, that's going to hold them through these four years on my campus.
0: Just have a really hard time sort of understanding that there'd be a sort of epidemic of loneliness in American colleges because I basically see it as a movie set on college campuses and just surely everyone's doing keg stands the whole time. That That is, isn't that the only thing that happened? And Like going to a pep rally uh,
1: or else not doing it or sort of some sort of frat house antics. I was just going to ask, so you you are trying to connect your students to a community. And it sounds like also to encourage them to ask some of these big questions about meaning and purpose in life. And you have to do that for a very diverse student body who you said many of them are not religious, but many of them are also religious and many of them have lots of different religious conceptions. Do you find it difficult to find a language that works for all these different groups of people? Because, you know, you said maybe God doesn't work for you as a term but for many of these students that's a very important term so how do you find working with that kind of difference in language and concepts
2: yeah so that's a good question because so many of the students who are religious they they have their language they know where to find their groups too right but everyone else um whether they know they have a spiritual care need or not they're probably just going about their day just i don't know what picks uh Piques their interest. A, a key term right now is well-being or wellness, right? Um, and um, it's great that our student affairs team considers this because we we will look at different measures of well-being, and spirituality is just one piece of it, right? Um, and so, I when a student walks into my office, I will do sort of a spiritual assessment in terms of how are they taking care of themselves? Are they feeling connected? And what sort of grounding practices might they have? And um, what you learn in spiritual care is that you use the language of the person in front of you, you let that they're guiding you, right? And they have all the answers, you're just helping them to sort of get to those points so that you can be a resource to them.
0: It would be great. I'm sure there'd be, because I think this stuff has got application in businesses, in education, in really any place that people are gathered. We're all sort of have got these constant questions, this constant sense of becoming. I heard someone put it a great way, which says our brains are big enough to ask the questions, but not to come up with the answers. <laughs> and so that spiritual assessment thing, what are the different components which are on that?
2: Oh, my gosh. I'll, I'll have to send you a handout. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to I'll be like, exact,
0: but just like...
2: Well, I so let's see here. So maybe I'll use connection as one of the um, boxes that I'm trying to check off. So I'll ask them, you know, how do they orient to the world? Like, what um, what is something greater than themselves that they find comfort in? And so... That will answer the God question, right? Um, But it will also answer all types of questions. So that'll be one. Another question of connection is, do they spend time with themselves? Do they actually put down their phone and their computer? And what do they do? Do they garden? Do they meditate? Do they, like, that's one. Um, Connection with others. That was something I raised as well. Um, just making sure they have a good network of friends. Um, if they don't have a mentor, they're on a college campus, they should get a mentor. Um, and um, just intergenerational connections, too. Sometimes they don't realize that you can hang out with a faculty member outside of class and ask them deep questions as well. So getting them hooked up with someone who has a shared interest of theirs. And then... My favorite, of course, is connection with nature. I want to make sure, even though we're all in lockdown in our college dorms at this point, um, that they still are taking advantage of the green lawns that are sitting empty on this campus, that they go and they absorb some sun, you know, all of that. So that's just an example in terms of the connection piece, connecting with themselves, others, and the grander planet.
0: And then there's uh, one of the things which... Uh, the actual sort of work that you did was on interfaith work yeah like why did you think that that was so important you know we live in such uh, the reason we're asking is obviously we live in such sort of divided times that sort of anything which helps understanding across gaps is uh, obviously of huge interest so yeah what's the what drew you to that?
2: Well, um, think about it. What's that famous line in regards to the most segregated hour in the U.S. is the, you know, 10 a.m. in the morning when people go to church? Um, Mm. Because um, we're segregated not only by race but by beliefs and so forth. And so – Again, coming from Guam, I only knew Roman Catholics. So at my university campus, um, I got extra credit for one of my classes if I went and did interfaith dialogue. And I was like, okay, that's good. So, you know, I can, um, be a good Asian and get that A plus <laughs> with all my, <laughs> um, extra credit. But anyways, I went to interfaith dialogue. And, um, as you can imagine, as someone who was an atheist at that time, I, was scared to tell my parents I was an atheist. And no joke, all my friends were Mormon. So I also didn't want to tell my friends I was an atheist. (laughs) How did
0: you end up hanging out with uh, a big load of Mormons? Because it's Arizona.
2: Arizona State University. It's just, that's the population.
0: Okay. Who was there?
1: there wasn't anyone else the, uh, was
0: yeah yeah I guess to us there's a sort of rare and unusual bird. but where did they did you all hang out and not drink together what was the sort of
2: I remember going on a group date not knowing it was a group date I thought I was going on a date with a cute guy and I ended up on a date with 10 other people
1: <laughs> wow but not 10 other people trying to date you no, no that's a reality is, tv show dates.
2: yeah it yeah. was like we were all paired with our partner but we were on a a group date so anyway for
1: for for what so you could all just make sure that nothing happened exactly. that it was like are you serious So that, i was trying to work out what it was so you can keep an eye on where your hands are
2: <laughs> yes no privacy no privacy that is did it work boom.
1: vanessa or did you did you manage to sneak away
2: <laughs> that's funny um <laughs> anyways i don't know I noticed how we you avoided here, the question. but Very yes good.
1: So, so we infer that you managed to sneak away. Very good, Vanessa. Well done. (laughs) You avoided your. your...
2: Anyhow, so bringing it back, didn't tell my family, didn't tell my friends that I was an atheist, but in interfaith dialogue, I had a faculty member who was like, Oh my gosh, Vanessa, I'm so glad you're part of this interfaith dialogue because we had evangelicals, Muslims, Jews, like a whole mix of folks. She's like, We never get atheists in here. I'm so glad you're here. And having her support and say that was the first time um encouraged me for the very first time in a big group of students of my peers that I could own, you know, this um atheist worldview. And um I can't tell you how powerful that was, you know, for me at mm. the age of 19 or 20, having uh, an audience to that, as well as my peers saying, oh, wow, you know, like, tell me more. And I was like, I don't know what else to say about atheism, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> i don't believe in anything there we go
2: there we go um and it, certainly it played out through the semester that i was further uh progressive than many of my more uh conservative religious folks um but it was a great playground for me to really engage what i did believe in um and and to be in conversation with folks who didn't share my worldview when else are these conversations taking place You know, Mm. that's why this interfaith work is important. Even though the word interfaith, you know, it's about faith, whatever. uh, I will do the work because I want to engage people who are different than me because that is going to make me grow as well. So
0: Yeah, I've always think like when I'd get invited onto interfaith discussions, I would sort of want to avoid them because I didn't want Sunday Assembly to be categorized as a faith community because like for at least to my mind it was like there's once you get categorized as a faith community you get put you're able to go and do certain things whereas like we were able to get sort of go and work in you know sort of like local government or sort of other places which wouldn't work directly with faith groups so it is yeah a really sort of interesting thing to try to particularly in the in this area like is it like, what, what should be the other groups which would be in that interfaith thing to, like, go and get sort of these discussions happening? Because I often think that it goes and there's this huge amount of people who whose, like, spiritual lives aren't really being sort of, aren't being guided, maybe, or don't even have the words to do it, don't have the groups to do it in, and then don't have the leaders who can go and represent their views, uh, that's something which is really uh, on my mind. And oh, I've, I like one of the things that you were involved in as well is you were invited to the Democrat National Convention, where there was a lot of discussion about, like, a lot of in politics, a lot of time is dedicated to faith groups, which isn't particularly in the US, which isn't dedicated to the non religious.
2: Right. Um- Thank you for bringing that up because when I got on that panel, I looked around, I was like, who got me this invitation? Because there were, um, Christian leaders, like bishops. Okay. And, um, Muslim leaders, like all these folks. And I was just like, Oh, and I'm here as well. And it was great. Um, because
1: you're my bishop, Vanessa.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny because I didn't even know how to like put my name on there, like chaplain, Vanessa, leader, Vanessa, whatever. Um, but it was wonderful because. Um, first of all, the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, they had an interfaith council this year, which we know the U.S. is full of all f- um, different faith traditions. And so there were three chairs and um, we somehow got a humanist to be one of the chairs of that council. And her name is Sarah Levin. She's doing amazing work for, with secular strategies and I think the secular Democrats of America. Because she was on the leadership panel, she was able to get a variety of humanists into the freaking DNC <laughs> mm. with an audience of multiple thousands of people um, over that whole week. And so I was so glad to take part. And really, I was a cheerleader um, for having faith in democracy at a time when, you know, our, our views, our hope is just um, at an all time low, right? And so I enjoyed having that conversation. And even though I don't, you know, in a time like this, I can feel really sad about the future of our, our of our nation, and yet, um, with those people, I was energized just articulating that, and I really hope our o- audience was um, excited about it too.
0: What does being a chaplain actually mean? Like a lot of people just think you could only be a religious chaplain, but what does that what yeah. does that entail?
2: Yeah. So um, mostly. <laughs> So as a chaplain, I provide spiritual care to my community, and my community is uh, about 50,000 students uh, here at the University of Southern California. So um, spiritual care sort of recognizes and responds to the need of the human spirit. And so um, how can I say this? So like the research has shown that a connection between your beliefs and your sense of well-being um, yeah, they're connected, right? And so I Mm -hmm. help students sort of navigate what they do believe so that I can support them in their well-being. So we discuss, you know, positive beliefs, comfort, strength, um, things that they get from religion or from other practices, whether it's meditation or yoga or, or you know what, uh, like anything. And so it's all about well-being. And so, um, I was trying to think because it's such a strange semester now that we don't have students but typically i would be sitting in my office this is my work office they let me come to campus um to record this and usually i would have a variety of students just pop in um and whether it's a breakup or it's a death in the family or it's a i have big questions about life and i don't have anyone to talk to you know it's all of that and so people Mm. invite me into their world whether they're in crisis or not and literally they just they just want to be heard so there's this famous quote right um it says being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable so spiritual care is a practice of love Um, Simply listening to people is an act of love, and you oftentimes see that reflected in the students who they just need someone to talk to, and I'm that person.
1: I think that's so important, particularly given what you were saying earlier about this pandemic of loneliness, and particularly given the demographic shifts in religion, such that younger people are less and less religious than older people. And so are kind of losing connection to these ready-made communities that they might otherwise have plugged into. That having someone to listen to them and take their kind of spiritual existential concerns seriously is important. And I feel like In the context of this discussion, where two of us are from the UK, although I live and work in the US now, my sense, Sanderson, I don't know if you agree with this, is that universities in the UK, they're much less likely to have a figure like a Dean of Religious Life or a college chaplain than in the USA. And when they do, they tend to be associated to old Christian institutions. So I'm like thinking of the chaplain's in Oxford and Cambridge, they're chaplains of a chapel. They literally run a Christian chapel and they don't seem to have the role of seeing to the spiritual needs of all students. That seems just to be a gap.
0: Yeah, that's why I'm really interested by this role. I think as I sort of like think about what lifefulness can do, this reimagining, I think that lifefulness chaplains would be a way of giving, of sort of like saying, well, look, it There is this role which is important to play where people gather, and that is to tend to people's spiritual lives in the broadest possible sense. That person probably shouldn't be their HR. (laughs) You know, that shouldn't be the person who's there to hire or fire them, right? It shouldn't be the boss. Uh, But there is, you know, this other force that people can come to. And yeah, certainly in the UK, there are, you know, there really are, is still like so connected to religious institutions. And I think that's where the bit of the disconnect is because in the US, there's still this idea, there's still a load of people who would like find it really useful to get for there to be a religious chaplain because so many people relatively are religious, that then you'll be answering the question, oh gosh, what can we do with this chaplain? Oh, maybe there should be a non-religious one. Whereas in the UK, like why on earth would I go to see a chaplain? Like there's just nothing, like I don't, none of my friends go to church. No one I've, I remember discovering that someone went to church at university and I looked at them as though they had some sort of mental health issue. I was just, really? She go, church? Really? What? It was just so outside my experience uh, of university and so then what would be like if there was to be a, a chaplain of a, a a business or some like what what sort of uh role could that play what this is me just putting something I've been thinking about onto you because you're a chaplain and you're super smart. So there we go.
1: Sanderson wants to become the chaplain of, of Facebook. Or Google. No, pretty much s- what I'm aiming for.
2: I was going to say these roles already exist, and we call it sort of stealth chaplaincy because they're not using the umbrella of the chaplain, ah. and yet they're engaging the language of not only well-being but spirituality as well. And so I think you go to Facebook, and there's like a happiness coordinator. Yes.
0: But by the way, that also sounds, and I'm working with Facebook on stuff, that almost sounds like going, change the settings, not quite happy enough. Uh, We've been looking at your results. You could have been 40% happier last week. (laughs) The general happiness here needs to be raised. We have a little red button on your phone, which is going to, like light up whenever you're not happy. happy. Yeah, so that entire, so there's a happiness coordinator.
2: Yeah, there's a happiness coordinator. But what they do, because um, actually I'm getting Facebook and Google mixed up now because uh, we also have a partnership with Google. And it reminds me of the Sunday Assembly Smoops, right? Yes. Okay, employee, you're all about yoga. Let's make you a leader. And you're going to lead lo- yoga for all of these people too. <laughs> And so what they end up doing is they have a happiness coordinator who's just maximizing, um, existing interests and then making it so that it cultivates a practice of well-being within certain segments of their organization. So you need someone. So this is very intentional. You need someone who's thinking about your employee's well-being and the many forms it takes. And you Mm. need someone who knows how to network and use the resources that are already at hand. And so Google, Facebook, like Silicon Valley already knows how to do this. Um, They're just talking about it differently.
0: Mm. And yeah, because that sort of raises up and that suddenly means that it's like actually really apl- applicable to anyone. Like ask people what they want to do <laughs> and then help them do it. Like it, it's the sort of simplest way around that. It's like most people are okay, well, let's go and, uh, you know, when I go and work with companies to go and do this, help them design a ritual, help them design a practice. And actually, if you just ask people, okay, who here does what? And you're going to have someone who, Occasionally meditate. Someone who's like did yoga training, or you don't need to bring someone in. And I think that's where looking at the think of it almost like ministries in a church, where you say, okay, like what can you do yourselves? And actually, that's really empowering because it is something which you're choosing to do as
1: well. Yeah, but it's so fascinating this whole area. Your work in particular, Vanessa. You're bringing. A spiritual approach and language and kind of framework to a setting that is considered by a lot of people, at least in the US, to be quite secular. Like it always going on, like politicians are always going on about how secular American universities are and how they've driven religious out. But it seems like it's it's almost I don't know, a reclamation of these important ideas about meaning and community and existential purpose and things like that in a space that may not have been giving enough attention to it sufficiently does that make any sense i don't know yeah no now.
2: i think that makes sense because so often here in the us people um there's anti-intellectualism as well um as the secular university is liberal and progressive you know all the way like This is the, this is how these institutions Mm. are viewed. Um, and yet you get to any university campus, there is a plethora of ideas that are on that campus and they're engaging each other through faculty, through students and so forth. Like everything is represented on my campus anyways. And so it is a, a question as to how a university can serve their students in becoming the leaders or whatever it is they are trying to become, how can they do that holistically? And so private universities like USC do put money into an office of religious and spiritual life because they recognize a student's whole well-being also includes the spiritual. And so um, same thing at Stanford, same thing at Harvard, Yale, and so forth. Um, You get to public universities, and it's a ton of affiliate sort of um, Religious organizations who are just trying to get to the students, but mm. at private universities, they are thoughtful uh, about including this in part of the resources to their student body.
0: How are the how are the Trojans doing this year?
2: <laughs> in what way? I mean, sports. Oh God, I meant I
0: meant sports. There, that was me just like trying to get into some friendly, like uh, <laughs> you know, how's the college football going on? I just wanted.
2: Um, so uh, sadly, I've never been to a football game i that will change once they let us back in there, right um but um, no, the sad truth is is that most of college sports were canceled this year, mm. and so our spirit like we are low in spirit, sadly um but how else can I answer that question i, I don't, <laughs> you know what my my sport of choice is well, ping pong
0: oh okay yeah
2: (laughs) and so the saddest part of this school year is that no one will play ping pong with me in the courtyard for probably another 12 months because i bought i bought a ping pong table and put it at the center of our university religious center and people have so much fun playing ping pong with the deans they're like holy crap i didn't know the deans would play ping pong i'm like yeah i'm out there barefoot playing with you
0: (laughs) are you good at it
2: i'm real good
0: yeah, I can uh, I can imagine that. I the one of the great tragedies of the sort of line of work that I've chosen is that I end up sort of getting to know quite a few American uh, people. And then whenever I meet them, I'm like, oh, my God, because how, like, how's the Which NFL team do you like? Have you just been? And none of them are into it. And I sort of feel I'm on this lonely island in the UK into the NFL. And I meet people and they're like, oh, sports ball. How many point goals is that? And I'm like, come on, guys, try to be American. You like the NFL.
2: <laughs> Wait, who's your team?
0: Oh, I can't support one team because I can't oh. really deal with the pain of losing.
2: <laughs> okay, okay.
0: <laughs> the game as a whole. Uh, the and then I suppose one of the things which you've like must see right now is both the stories of how people are coping with coronavirus and then also some of the the difficulties of which, which are showing up. So, like, yeah, what are You know, like, how are people surviving this? Like, what are the problems that you're seeing on campus at the moment?
2: Yeah, well, um, it's so sad to have to say this, but um, the sense is that we'll likely lose more students to um, mental health issues taking their lives than we will seeing deaths to COVID. That's the real truth here. Because not only... Are um, were our students already lonely before this pandemic? Now they are stuck living with their parents, who they'd probably rather, you know, not be living with at this point. Mm. They'd rather be amongst friends. They'd rather be on campus. And so, um, it's it's sad to think that the work of this office and our well being office is. The most important at this time, we're reaching out to students, we're making them feel connected, we're offering programs um, that are going to help them build up healthy habits um, for when they're alone. That's a pretty dark, you know image I not, just gave you there no, and all. yet and yet I've been so excited because we're like in week five of our semester and I thought none of our student groups were going to thrive at all but we've actually seen a bump in participation so these are so I have what 85 religious, spiritual, and, uh, philosophical groups underneath the religious life umbrella. And of course, a ton of those are Christian, but my secular student fellowship, they're meeting every Monday. They're playing games. They're having deep conversations. They're going as if nothing ever, you know, stopped them. They're connecting. The same is true for our Hindu students, our Muslim students, all of this. And, um, the, coolest thing of this time is, of course, that anyone can attend, whereas before, um, if you weren't in the space or, or some other conflict or so forth, like you couldn't participate. But students are so eager to see each other. And just whether it's a religious topic, or it's just to connect outside the classroom, it's happening. And so I think what we'll see after this pandemic is that students are going to have a sense that friendships are important, and should be maintained at a level... Um, very differently than they were doing previously.
1: It feels to me like the pandemic has really revealed the desperate need for work like yours, like community building work, work which helps people make sense of things that's happening in their lives. I feel that a lot of my members are connecting deeper and more regularly online than they did in person, weirdly. Are you finding the same thing?
2: Well, isn't that the truth? Because everyone asks, oh, how are you? How are you? And no one answers that truthfully. Now people are being authentic, authentic. Like where did all this authenticity, vulnerability, it's at the very, you know, uh, tip of our tongues now and we're just so much more open than we were previously and i'm i already knew our secular students were good at that because they love to talk about death and ultimate meaning and so forth but um but some of my other student groups it was like too much fun times and not enough like one-on-one connection but in the student groups i've observed so far this semester Mm -hmm. they're going straight to the heart of things they are seriously um engaged with checking in with each other and really knowing what's helping them thrive during a very difficult time.
0: Yeah. And I find it really, one, so interesting to go and see, like, I think people have really realized how important this is because often just being physically close with people does so much of the heavy lifting. You're just like, I'm actually with someone and they're not trying to kill me. <sighs> I'm actually okay. You know, that does a lot of the work, to tell your sort of uh, physiognomy that you don't have to go into a uh, sort of cortisol stress response. There is, I think for a lot of people, they'll find it uh, quite hard to understand this loneliness crisis, which you describe on university. Like, yeah, please, could you just just sort of dive into that?
2: So what I'd say is we are a very large campus with 50,000 students, 30,000 staff, all of that. You were surrounded by people all the time, you know, pre-pandemic um and yet with more people um becomes more loneliness because our students um now generation Z they've come up in a world mm. where um uh, a lot of their social life is on the computer is on the internet and so forth and so when it comes to in person connection our students don't know how to make friends that's the truth they don't know how to make friends and so the coolest thing i observed once was i was playing ping pong out in the courtyard and with a student who just happened to come up and another student came up um she's like oh i didn't know there was a ping pong table i was like oh yeah meet so and so such and so forth they made a date to come back and play ping pong and before the one student left she was audibly excited she's like i made a friend like she said that out loud She had not made a friend at all. Like, this was in the spring semester one year. And I was just like, how amazing was that to hear? Because I sort of grew up in a time where I had a good sense that I had a good number of friends. And I'm still close with my friend from middle school. But these students... They may not have a social, like an actual network of friends that are supporting them and no wonder they're lonely. And so, yeah, I'm going to create spaces where people get to connect authentically and they're going to hopefully walk out of the Zoom room with a, a new friend.
1: Related to what we're doing with lifefulness, because I think that people often assume that if you surround someone with a lot of other people like if they're just living on campus campus or whatever they'll make relationships like it just happens naturally and i actually think that that's the case for a lot of the spiritual goodies that religion tends to provide is that people assume that they'll get them in a secular context naturally without anyone having to work to make them it's like oh you don't need to believe in god don't need to go to church you'll just get a sense of meaning on your own It you'll just generate it or whatever and what that misses is that all these religions they're not just sets of beliefs there are good practices there sometimes which help people get the spiritual goods that they were getting and that if you don't replicate those practices or those structures somehow they're just they're not going to magically get that stuff james is talking about circumcision <laughs> yeah that was what i was thinking that was on the, on, on the, on the tip of my oh.
0: <laughs> we'll we'll complete the joke ourselves James. the uh and yeah and so that for instance small groups i've like i have like the the practice of people coming together i remember when i remember when uh so you mentioned that smoops is this idea these were small groups that we had at sunday assembly and when we started sunday assembly i I was like, going, yeah, you could have something which is a bit like sort of Alcoholics Anonymous, but for life, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. And then I sort of told Pippa about that. She was like, you mean small groups? And like meeting together regularly, it's like, no, that's done. That's like literally the building block of church life is small groups of people who genuinely know where you're at. And that just doesn't, that doesn't just happen.
2: Yeah, um, so that has been the most fun, uh, part of my job. I've only been here three years, but the, the first few things I did was get a ping pong table, um, started a doggy it's happy hour. It's been ha- a
0: busy three years.
2: <laughs> Year one,
0: buy ping pong table.
2: <laughs> Day two, doggy happy hour. Bring dogs to the courtyard because of course we see this on the internet. Everyone loves dogs. And that's another place I can introduce students to other students who like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, we started Tea Time. It's like, college students love free food, right? Let me give mm. you free tea, free cookies, and a, a cool student lounge, and we're just going to hang out and eat cookies together. And that was it. It's as simple as that. Just like churches do the coffee hour, it's a place to connect.
0: But, uh, though one of the things, which is, I also think there's there is a difference, though, between, like, coming together like that in a church environment or a spiritual environment like the context sort of sets the ground rules as well it's like i can probably have a different level of conversation here than if it was just getting a coffee like if the you know the local frat slash football team was doing a coffee i don't know whether they'd be doing a coffee morning but you'd have like a certain type of conversation but actually there's a whole load of ideas which mean that I can I can be a bit more open. I can go and reveal more about myself, Yeah, which come from it.
2: So that's one thing universities actually do pretty well. They create a sense of belonging um, in regards to the stories they tell about their mascot or their students, right? And so uh, we're the Trojans, right? And so we're the Trojan family. And so already there's that shared belief um, mm. that we're at an amazing school together and we have the best football and also we're just amazing, period. And so... <laughs> <laughs> with um with that shared identity that they have, um, that's um ripe for further connection too, in even if it's in uh the religious space here at my office.
1: I think that's a really good point because not only does secular society tend to not recreate some of these religious structures very well, but it does it significantly worse, it seems to me, than even a regular college campus, which actually already has quite a lot of community building activities and ways to make people feel like part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that it's interesting that I get the experience often of people joining the Ethical Society who were part of groups at universities that they really a major part of their identity that they were really committed to and then they graduate and suddenly there's nothing like that they feel totally adrift and so i wonder about what universities are doing right that we could try and replicate in broader society
2: no i think that's probably why i was drawn to work in higher education because already like um Obviously, I'm a nerd. I love to study things. I even study religion when I'm not religious. like. Um, and so, of course, I wanted to be on a campus where I can just continue to learn things, whether I'm a student or not. Um, but we create a space where, like, USC is a bubble in L.A. Stanford is a bubble, you know, in Silicon Valley. And you, what you're experiencing there is so different from... The bigger world, and so there is a sense of connection um, that's going on there, and it's it's so strong when you're a student, and people miss it when they graduate. That's why people cry. They're they're losing friends, they're losing family through, that they've built, you know, through faculty, students, and otherwise. Like there's so much to be lost, and so that's why alumni become um, such an important. Uh, part of the the life of a university because you want them to come back not only for the football games but for other celebrations um, you want them to mentor the upcoming students right um, so that they have a connection and know that it's going to be all right after they graduate so many people are like fearing for the future um, there's so many feedback loops that serve the community and like past trojans are trying to support new trojans and like there's a lot there Right, And so I think there is um, a lot to learn from the university model and obviously it's not easy to replicate because where else are you going to get people devoted for four years of their life right or, or seven years of their life but um, I could I could see a, a lot of models coming out of how we engage our students such that they are a Trojan for life.
0: Thanks so much for that VGB very good broadcasting that's what that stands for I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, so wh- where can people follow you? Where can they stay, uh, to get all their, uh, VGB news? You're on Twitter, I'm sure.
2: Um, wait, wait, what did you, for sure?
0: You're on Twitter, aren't you? What's your Twitter? Basically, um, what's no, your Twitter handle? No, do not find but me on Twitter
2: because fo- quite literally, am I the last person not on Twitter? It's there, but it's all my Instagram photos. So actually, if you want to follow my randomness on Instagram, it's VG break um and it's a lot of photos of my garden and my dog who is named tofu um and then the randomness about you know th- topics that i feel passionate about so um anyhow yeah find me on instagram because you know what this world needs is uh more beautiful photos and so my spiritual practice is putting beautiful photos um <laughs> for my friends to you know love
0: Well, look, uh, go there. You're surely going to see a huge uh, bump in your Insta following there. Hey, thanks so much for that. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. Thank you, James. And we will see you uh, next week. Bye. 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 What a fun conversation that was. One of the really awesome things about this podcast has been sort of getting back in touch with people that I don't have quite enough time to speak to, or I don't get to see as much as I would like, or, you know, really go and connect over ideas uh, as much as I'd want to. And I first met Vanessa in 2013 at the start of Sunday Assembly. She came to the launch of Sunday Assembly San Francisco, I think, and then... Uh, I met her at the Humanist Conference, uh, American Humanist Association Conference in Philadelphia. And it's just fantastic to go and see how she has, you know, we're on very similar journeys and really doing the same thing. And it is, well, not exactly the same thing. But yeah, just to see how uh, our paths have carried on uh, sort of developing and. Yeah, wonderful to speak to her. And at the end of these podcasts, I always have a bit of a rambling uh, reflection on it, but also an opportunity to talk about the Life on This Community, because guess what? You know, this isn't just a podcast, it is a community. And then also to talk about, yeah, just really like what this week has been like in the Life on This Project. So I'm going to start off with the Life on This Community side of things, and I'm going to say yes Thank you to everyone for letting me know that lifefulness.io Forward slash membership. A link on that was broken. And uh, after I went and fixed it, people have gone and applied to be part of the Life on This small groups. You'll have heard Vanessa talk about those Smoops that we had at Sunday Assembly. You know, that is the first stage of the community we're building here. So please go and check it out. We're starting off small, but these are groups where you will go you know, regularly meet twice a month with really inspiring people who can hold you to account. who are committed to living life as fully as possible, but, you know, not necessarily in that Instagram yoga on a boulder sort of way, but in a way which is really intentional and really committed. I just use the word intentional. Ah, normal people don't use that in a way purposeful that's a better one uh so yeah go and check that out lifefulness.io forward slash membership uh there's an application form because we want to make sure that certainly for the start of the community it is just a really uh, fantastic group of people who are balanced in all the sorts of uh, diversities and inclusions that you'd like so that's the community side of things and we're going to be getting that off the ground soon uh then Yeah, the other thing is uh, the Lifefulness Project, the company. Yeah, that had been going really well. The podcast had launched, uh, interviewing Tim Minchin, all of these amazing things. And then on Monday, I had to go and get a COVID test uh, because I had a dry cough. That then means that our son had to come from nursery. And it is so weird. You'd think that like you know, new projects and new social enterprises. We shouldn't be talking about childcare, but that is the world that we're in. And then what happened is because all of my rhythms and routines were now messed up because my delightful son was at home, then it meant that I forgot that, I was meant to have therapy on Tuesday night and it's not the first time that I have forgotten when my therapy is or got the payment wrong and so today my therapist got in touch with me and almost fired me and that then went and triggered like a whole load of concern and, oh my God, you can't even like, like even therapists don't like you. How can that be? They have to deal with, you know, <laughs> they have to deal with everyone. However, you'll be pleased to hear I've been able to save, uh, Save my therapist. Uh, It it just means that for this week, at least, I'm just going to have to, you know, change my expectations of what can be done. I was playing, uh, trying to get my, oh, it's going to be amazing. Got the time to spend with Ragnar. Oh, got this sort of rail, this like railway set that I could build with him. And the guy, guy just wants to destroy it all. He is a cross between the Joker and Dr. Beeching. Uh, The Dr. Beeching reference, uh, one for people who are fans of Railway reorganizations of the nineteen sixties. So uh, yeah, that is what's happening on the community. That's been happening. In, what's been happening in the lifefulness project, and that leaves me with uh, saying thanks so much to you for listening. Oh, I forgot something else. I did. Oh yeah. Then on the other hand, I worked with a uh, county council uh, yesterday using some of uh, lifefulness techniques and ideas to help them in a sort of. Culture Away Day. And uh, yeah, so that that is the sort of like work highlight. It's not all uh, being disappointed in my son for not building railways. So yeah, if you would, we really want to speak to you about this and we really want to hear from you. So go to at the Life on This Project on Facebook and Instagram. Go to at Life on This Project, uh, L-I-F-E-F-U-L-N-E-S-S-P-R-J-T on Twitter. I'm at Sanderson Jones, James Croft, is uh, at Croft Speaks on Twitter and now this is the time where I just want to give credit. I want to give credit to our amazing guest, Vanessa Gomez-Break. I want to give credit to James Croft, my wonderful co-host. I want to give credit to Mav Shetty, the legend who puts this together, William Andrews, who created the artwork, and Roman Rapak and Miro Schott, who created the brilliant backing music that you can hear right now.